Good afternoon. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday afternoon edition. I'm Jeff Smelser, next in Pennsylvania. And if you are anywhere in southeast Pennsylvania, uh, we'd love to get in touch with you. If you find the things that we say on this webcast interesting, if you're interested in studying the Bible with us, you can uh, get in touch with me. Uh, you can look me up on Facebook, Jeff Smelser uh, on Facebook. You can find me uh, certainly at, at our website, extonchurch.org. Also with me today, uh, Chase Byers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, yep. the capital city of this Commonwealth. Yeah, that's exactly right. Good to see you, Jeff. Very good. Good to see you. And you all meet in the YMCA right downtown. Beautiful building right there on uh, just off the Susquehanna River, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, 701 North Front Street in Harrisburg, downtown Pennsylvania. Pretty, pretty riverfront there. Yes, it is. And Drew DeBrado is with us today. He's normally in the background helping with all the technical aspects. I've mentioned before, he's kind of the mastermind of of this whole uh, webcast kind of idea and, the, and uh, the, the marketing of it, the publicity of it, and, and the graphics and all of that. And today he's uh, with us, uh, joining us in the discussion. He's in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. Good afternoon, Drew. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thank you for inviting me to be with you today. Yes, Honesdale is a nice uh, northeastern town of uh, Pennsylvania. And we also uh, meet, uh, the Christian group here meets in the YMCA in Honesdale. Wow, got a theme going here. Joe Works, who um, usually is with us, is not with us today. Uh, Lord willing, we'll have him back soon. Um, but we have a topic of interest. You know, yesterday on the Tuesday webcast that Drew, you and uh, I and a couple of others are involved in, uh, we talked about a debate that occurred Monday night on the subject of once saved, always saved. Uh, last night, Tuesday night, there was a follow-up debate, same two debaters, um, and they were talking about infant baptism. We want to talk about that a little bit today. Just real quickly, first of all, ha have either of you ever attended a formal religious debate where there are two speakers with opposing views about what the Bible teaches, and there's a program planned out where, where one will speak uh, for so long, and then the other, and then the first one will come back, and so on. Before this week, have either of you ever attended such? No, myself. I've never been to one at all. Never been to one at all. Chase, how about you? The one I went to Monday night was the first one I had ever been to. Debates seemed to be a pretty popular thing back in the early 1900s and even into the 50s and 60s um, and part of the 70s. But by the time I came around uh, in 1996, debates were unheard of. Right. Uh, so that, that was the first one I'd ever been to. Yeah, they were, they were popular back in the 1800s. Uh, but, but in recent decades, there are not many. But there were two speakers taking opposing views. Uh, one was a Calvinist, and he was arguing last night that the Bible uh, teaches that it's appropriate to baptize infants. And then the other uh, speaker was denying that. Uh, so what I want to do today um, the speaker who was a Calvinist, he's a Presbyterian, um, who was arguing that it is appropriate, scripturally authorized to baptize infants. Uh, his name is Greg Strawbridge, and I want to present his arguments. And you guys can talk about the merits or lack of merits in them as we go. But I want to just, and I don't believe that it's proper to, Baptized infants. Can we say that up front? You guys accept that? That I don't believe. Yes. It? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right. yes. Well, 
I was going to say, well, and to start too, Jeff, why don't you just go ahead and define for us kind of what the debate even is? It's about infant baptism, but what does that mean? What are you going to be affirming for us? Okay, uh, so I, I, I'm not really affirming it. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> but I'm going to be presenting his arguments, which are to say it is appropriate to take an infant and when he's a month or two old to, quote, baptize him. Now, they're not using baptize in the biblical sense. They're not immersing. Uh, the Greek Orthodox Church actually immerses infants. But in the Presbyterian Church, what they do is they sprinkle some water on him, pour the water on his head, something like that. And so that's what they're saying. And they're saying that is scripturally authorized. And, of course, immediately you go, well, wait a minute. There's no example of that in the Bible. And so Greg's first point was, well, that doesn't mean they're not authorized. And so he had an argument to say why they're authorized. And then I'll make his argument. You ready? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, by the way, for, for our viewers, for our viewers, please feel free to respond to these arguments. You can, if you're watching by BibleQuest.tv, you can use the Q&A app. If you're watching by means of Facebook, you can post your comments in the, uh, in the comments section, and you can answer why the arguments I'm making are flawed. Um, so, so and, and you know what? Yeah, Drew? Yeah, so you're talking about infant baptism, right? Yeah. If it's, if it's, if it's authorized or not, because there's a comment that came in that relates to identify maybe a little clearer what you're talking about. Okay. Is there an age of accountability when a person is not accountable one moment and then something snaps and the person becomes accountable, or does it come on gradually? You know, I don't that, know if that relates to what you want to say, but that gets to the core of what is. Yeah, okay. In a minute, I'm going to be making the argument pro-infant baptism, but I will call attention to a passage in connection with that viewer's comment. Appreciate that viewer's comment. Yeah, that was from Paul. And you say what? That was from Paul. Okay. Um, I, I'm not sure how that works, but I know that there is such an, an age, and Paul alludes to it in Romans, the seventh chapter, and verse nine. Paul says, I was alive apart from the law once, but when the commandment came, sin, as one translation gives it, sprang to life. And I think that's the right idea here. And I died. So I was alive apart from the law. I wasn't accountable under the law. There came some point, whether it's gradual or suddenly like a light switch, I don't know. But there came some point where sin sprang to life and I died. Obviously, the, being, the dying is spiritual. Well, the being alive was spiritual also. So he's saying as a child, at some point, he was not accountable to the law. He was not held guilty under the law. He was not convicted of sin. And he was alive. He was spiritually right with God. But then oh. sin came along and he died. And what was that uh, reference again? Romans 7, verse 9. Okay. All right. Now, uh, presenting Greg's arguments. Remind me in about 10 minutes to reiterate for viewers who may have come in late. I don't really believe in infant baptism. I'm just presenting the arguments, and then you guys can, can deal with them, that Greg uh, Strawbridge made in the debate last night. All right. You ready? Yep. All right. The first point that he made is it doesn't matter that there's not any uh, examples uh, where you can say, here's an infant being baptized, uh, because we have to appeal to theology, and specifically covenantal theology. And, and what he meant by that, and he explained this, 
is that throughout the Bible, there are various covenants that God has with people. Uh, He mentioned that there was at creation a covenant that involved the tree of life, and that was made with Adam, Adam, uh, and yet Adam's descendants um, were part of that because when the curse was pronounced upon Adam, it was pronounced upon his descendants. So then he mentioned the Noah, the Noahic, as he said, covenant. There was a rainbow saying God would never again destroy the earth by means of a flood. And, um, and he argued that covenant obviously included his children. He quoted Hebrews eleven seven that refers to um, Noah's sons, Noah's children. Um, but you could also argue coming down through time, everybody's a beneficiary of that promise because we all can rest assured God's not going to destroy the world. world. I do have a question on that. Would that be a covenant then? Well, his, in other words, it's, it's, uh, you're asking because they didn't agree to anything. Is that right? It sounds like the Noah thing is more of a promise than it is a covenant. So what he's going to do, he's going to refer to Ephesians chapter two, and it's down in about verse 12 where you see the language covenants of promise. And so he's really kind of saying you have these promises which amount to covenants, even okay. though they're unilateral. Okay. And then he's going to mention the Mosaic covenant where you had, and he would, he said, so Passover was the sign of the Mosaic covenant. And yet, uh, if you look in the book of Exodus chapter 12, that's something that was to be carried on for generations. And so the children were included. Um, So he said, so since we have um, the new covenant and there's a sign of the new covenant, baptism, Lord's Supper, then just like in the Old Testament where there was a covenant and the children were included and they participated in the sign, Passover feast, for example, then children should be baptized. And I, he didn't seem to harp on it, but it seemed he would also say then they should eat the Lord's Supper. Uh, he would say Acts chapter 2, verse 39 and following, for to you is the promise and to your children and all that are far off. So, so all right, his argument is Old Testament covenants included the children. They participated in the symbol of the covenant. So we've got a New Testament covenant and it should include the children and they should participate in the symbol of the covenant, which is baptism. And then he said, if you disagree with that, if you say that somehow children are not included in the new covenant, what you have to do is show that something is radically different in the new covenant, as opposed to these old covenants. Let's go to Hebrews. Okay. Hebrews eight. And verse 8 says, for he finds fault with them. This is God, finds fault with them. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Yeah. And Drew, we could even back up a little bit to verse 6 when he says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. And yeah, so, and, I, and I, I, there's also one that says in that, that that old covenant is fading away. And that doesn't relate so much to the difference, except that verse 6 and then 8 and 9, Jeff, I'm sorry, but there seems <laughs> to be a different, better covenant. All right. So Greg said you have to show 
that the new covenant is radically different from the old covenants to show that, that we wouldn't also include children like the old covenants did. And you're saying right here in Hebrews 8 that we have a quotation from Jeremiah that said the new covenant would be different and it would be better. In so, fact, the word better is radical. Yeah, it is. So, all right. So, so now that point was made in the debate last night and Greg responded to it this way. He said, well, uh, the new covenant is different in various ways. Each covenant is different than the other in various ways. It's different in that, for example, oh, I don't remember what his particular points examples were, but examples would be it's different because we don't make animal sacrifices. We don't burn incense. So it's different in those respects, but still it's not different. You can't say it's different in the particular respect of children being included. I'm going to say the same thing then. You can't say that, Greg, that it's not different. It's me saying it is and not, or him saying it's not. The scripture says it is completely and new. I think better. I think you guys can do better than that. Uh Uh-oh. I need help here, Chase. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Chase. Go ahead. Jesus would say, whenever he was instituting the Lord's Supper, this, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Yeah. Uh, if I were to point out something that would be radically different, yes, you have animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, and you have a sacrifice in the New Testament. Yeah, that's in common that it's a sacrifice. But what is more radically different than an animal sacrifice versus the Son of God? coming down into the earth to be sacrificed and pour out his innocent and perfect blood. And it's kind of goes along with something. One of our viewers, Joe Ham asked, does this man, does Greg, or do you, Jeff, do you let infants take the Lord's supper too? Uh, this blood of the covenant is what symbolizes and shows our relationship with Christ. We're saved by that blood. And whenever we partake of the Lord's supper, we're thinking of that blood that covers our sins. And so we do not see children partaking in that because that is not a concept that they can understand. Jeff, yeah. on top of that, okay. <laughs> do you want something that's really radical? Okay. Go over to Jeremiah 31 yeah. and start in verse 31. Okay. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, which the Hebrew writer claims, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. You're ready for the radical stuff? Okay. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer... Can't get any more different than this. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I forgive the iniquity and will remember their sin no more. So in other words, the person that is under this covenant, he knows the Lord. That's you don't right. have to tell them about God is the sa- Savior. You That's know right. he's the Savior. You know him. Under that covenant, they had to be taught it. They were born physically. That you, that you nailed it. I mean, that you know, under the old covenant, you had a lot of people who were children who didn't know the Lord. You had people who were adults and they were worshiping idols and they didn't know the Lord, but they were part of the covenant people. 
And, and under the new covenant, it is radically different. That's what this passage is saying. And just as you're spelling it out, the difference pointed to here is the fact that everybody who's a part of this new covenant people will know the Lord. They all have the law written in their heart. These are all people who are spiritually and truly and inwardly God's people. If they're not that, then they're not part of the covenant, which means that you don't have a one-month-old baby being a part of the covenant, and you don't baptize him into the covenant people because he doesn't know the Lord. I've never seen someone swayed so easily. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I I give up. You win. (laughs) No, it's not us winning. We're looking at the scriptures. I want to make sure we're not making a mistake here. Well, there's more, though. Wait, Greg had had more. Greg had other arguments for infant baptism. And the next one is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, Paul talks about the situation where there is a, a spouse and an un, a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse. Can you repeat that reference? I was looking at some comments. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 14. And Paul talks about the situation where there is an, a believing and an unbelieving spouse married to each other. And he says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified in the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified in the children, I mean in the brother, else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. So if the children are counted as holy, then they're part of God's holy people. They must be part of the covenant. Therefore, you can baptize them. I would just pause for just a second here. Um and consider the context of what Paul's talking about here. The whole chapter is on marriage. Um, mm-hmm. To marry, not to marry, the advantages and disadvantages of both. Yeah, He's just talked about a husband, or I guess a woman in verse 13, who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, but she must not send this husband away. And in verse 14, this unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife, on the flip side, is sanctified through her believing husband. This is talking about, clearly, somebody, a Christian, who is married to an unbeliever. I believe it's really helpful to see this passage in the context of what a Jew would have understood that to mean. Uh In the old law, at the end of Ezra, at the end of Nehemiah, and other places, you would see that if a Jew was married to somebody who was not a Jew, they would have to put that wife or that husband away. And you guys remember what else they would have to put away as well? The children, the children. Yeah. The children would be put away as well. So you mm-hmm. come to the nude covenant, and Paul is teaching you need to stay with your spouse. If you're married, you need to stay with them. And maybe a Jew is in there thinking now, oh, no, here I've become a Christian. My spouse has not. I need to do away with them because that's what would have been required of me in the old covenant. Right. I think Paul here is saying, no, 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 not anymore. You, you, this marriage is sanctified. It is holy in the eyes of God. Um, and the children as well would have been holy in the eyes of God. They would have been sanctified. Not to mean that they are saved from their sins, if they have sins, but he is saying, this is okay. You do not have to depart from one another. That marriage unit, that family unit is made acceptable in, in God's eyes as a marriage. In the ch- yeah. Karen Gimmon said, Our, uh, the children are sanctified in the civil sense, not a spiritual one. Yeah, that's probably not a bad way to put it. Yeah, and that's, I was going to add to that. You already said it, but I want to clarify it. 
that you're saying is the holy is not holy being part of the covenant, but holy is being acceptable, that the marriage is acceptable as far as God is concerned, even though he is not a believer. Right. Yeah. So marriage is still acceptable. Yeah. Right. But he's got to do something. If he's going to become part of the covenant or if he's going to be a believer, I mean, if one is sins forgiven, he's got to do something else. But in this context, it's talking about the marriage relationship. Is that what the two of you are saying? Yeah, I think I think you guys have got it there. And and one of the points that got made last night was if you take this holy as meaning he's part of the holy people, he's part of the covenanted people, then you'd have to look back in the first part of the verse where it says the unbelieving wife is sanctified. Uh, so you've got this wife and she's an atheist and she doesn't want to come to church, but you're going to now say she's part of the holy covenant. Um, that's that's a little incredible. Uh, and I, I don't think you would want to say that. Greg. All right, well, Greg got, has more, though. He, he, well, hang on. Yeah. Let me give you another one from a viewer that has, has a question. I want, I want Greg to present this passage this viewer brings up and has questions. All right. Greg, take us over to Acts 2 and read verse 39 and give us your understanding. <laughs> how this okay. might you. All right. So I'm Greg, and I'm going to take us over to Acts 2 and verse 39, and I'm going to show you that infants should be baptized. So in Acts chapter 2 and verse 39... Uh, Peter said unto them, I'm going to start in verse 38. Peter said unto them, repent ye and be baptized, every one of you, for to you is the promise, and to your children, and to all that are far off, uh, even as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him. So he talks about baptizing, and then verse 39, it says, and the promises to the children. So, Jeff, what, what do you think about that passage? Build it. Well, well, let, let me add something to that. Is salvation for the children? Uh, well, it depends on whether they're predestined or not. You know, some oh, of the wow, we're going to get to another discussion there, another debate. Yeah. But it's the promise that is for everybody, even the ones who aren't born yet. And the promise doesn't that have to something to do with the action of the sinner doing something that you can have your sins forgiven. Yeah, the way you say, I, I guess I skipped that when I read it. I skipped the part about sins being forgiven. <laughs> that was very convenient, Greg, to skip that. <laughs> All right. And and I don't mean to represent that Greg skipped that phrase. No, I time. know, I know. But, but that phrase is significant. It's talking about remission of sins or forgiveness of sins in verse 38. And Greg's viewpoint is, that when infants are baptized, that doesn't have anything to do with the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, he, his viewpoint is you're just making them part of the covenant, as he says, the visible church. And so you baptize infants to make them part of the visible church, whether they're saved or not is totally a separate question. That depends on whether they were pre-chosen by God, according to the Calvinist theology. It's and, and I, I would say the promise here is the idea you're going to have forgiveness of sins. You're going to have the gift of the Holy Spirit if you do this thing, if you repent and are baptized. And that still doesn't answer our question. And, and Joe Ham was the one that brought out this passage for clarity, and I think it's a great passage to go to. That still doesn't answer our question because then that would mean a baby needs to repent and be baptized. True. Uh, and a baby cannot repent. There, not only do I believe there's nothing for that baby to repent of, but it doesn't have the mind uh, to, to repent yet right. in life. And so um, I think this is another way of Peter saying the ability to do this is not only going to be for this generation, it's going to be for the next, and it's going to be for all who are far off. Yeah. This is now the standard that God wants us to meet. Very good. All right. Well, Greg's not done. Greg's got more. 
Uh, so let's see here. Uh, next point is from Ephesians chapter 6. So let's turn over to the book of Ephesians. And in verse 1, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And if you go back to the beginning of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, you see this is written to the saints. This translation says to the saints that are at Ephesus. So if it's written to the saints, and it tells the children to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right, then obviously children are saints, and therefore it's appropriate to baptize them. That was his argument. Well, let's put it this way. Saints means holy ones. And so um, children are holy. Um, children are innocent, according to Jesus. They don't need baptism if, if they're holy and innocent. Now, it's appropriate. Now, that, there's a different argument. He's saying it's appropriate. Well, I'm saying it's He's not proving infant baptism because it says children obey your parents, and that's written to saints, and so these are included as saints. So they're part of the covenant, so they can be baptized. So, Jeff, would you consider yourself a child? Uh, I'm a child of my father. Sure. Yeah, I met I, I've met Dale several times. A wonderful man. You are yeah. his child, Scott Smilser, who's on the Tuesday program. You two and Daryl would be his children. So I'm Greg, and I'm going to argue, uh, well, yes, but this is obviously not talking about a 60-year-old or 61-year-old, to be honest, uh, child, because at 61, you're not obeying your parents. This no, is at that time, you're honoring them. Yeah, okay, but, but it says obey your parents. Yeah. Yeah. And he'll also say honor, but I think those two things can go hand in hand, can they not? We, we must honor and obey God's commands. and but, so. But to, to be in the category of obeying, you have to be uh, younger than 61. Okay, now now you just pulled that number out. I don't know where. So I, well, I don't I'm 61. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> I still think there's a general principle that we still have to abide by when our parents are asking us to do something within within limit, you know, within scripture, we still have an obligation to honor them by obeying them. Um, Jesus kind of dealt with some of this in Mark chapter seven, whenever there was these Pharisees who were not honoring their father and mother. So I'm going to push back here. I'm going to, I'm going to do Greg uh, a good one here. And I'm going to, I'm going to push back and say in this passage, the children in view are children who are to obey their parents, and the fathers are said, told in, in verse 4, not to provoke their children unto wrath. This isn't talking about the relationship between an 80-something-year-old man and his 61-year-old son. This is talking about the relationship between a man and children in his house where he has to nurture them. In fact, that's what it says in Ephesians chapter 6. It says, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but nurture them in the chastening and admonition of the Lord. Yeah. So I'm not, yeah. And as Chase, I also want to agree that this passage can also be addressing children themselves. I don't disagree with that. We got infant baptism here, right? I don't believe so. I think you're reading into something that's, that's not there. Instruct biblical instruction can still come through the epistles, even if it's not to somebody who's been baptized. You guys can nail this a little better than that. Well then, Pop back in, Jeff, for a second, because I'm curious to know what you're <laughs> Yeah, I'm fishing the, here. The question is infant baptism. How many infants do you know that can read Ephesians 6.1 and go, oh, it says I need to obey my parents, for this is right? 
Joe comments and said, maybe you're hinting at younger Christians that are living in the home. And that was one of the points that got made last night. We had an example of a, a young lady, 15 years of age, who had been baptized into Christ recently. She's still a child subject to her parents and needs to obey them. But she's old enough to have sinned and to have turned to the Lord, uh, seeking forgiveness and being baptized into Christ for the remission of her sins. So there you go. That's good. Okay. Um, you know, before you get further, I do know a couple. Well, I know of one 70-year-old man who does or did provoke his 40-year-old son into anger. So it's not just babies. All right. Let's go to Greg's next argument. Um, oh, we got to get to this one. Um, cause this was one that he spent a lot of time on. Uh, let's go to, uh, Acts chapter 16, uh, and check, check our viewers, see if we've got new viewer comments that we need to, uh, work in here. No, we're, we're up to date. All right. We're up to date. Great. If you viewers are wanting to chime in, get ready to chime in on this one. So I'm Greg Strawbridge, not really, but I'm, I'm presenting his views and he turned to Acts chapter 16 in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, uh, a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, one that worshiped God, heard us, whose heart, um, wait, this is, yeah, verse 15, when she was baptized and her household. And then we go to Acts chapter 16 and verses 19 and following, Paul and Silas are thrown in prison. Uh, there's an earthquake. The jailer thinks the, earth, the prisoners have escaped. He's about to kill himself. Uh, they haven't escaped. Paul preaches the gospel to him. And it says in verse uh, 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized. He and all his immediately. And uh, then it says, and he brought them up into his house and set food before them and re rejoiced greatly with all his house. So he had a household. So obviously, there were infants baptized here. Lydia had infants. The jailer had infants. Acts chapter 10, you have Cornelius uh, and his household. Um, verse 2, a devout man, one that feared God with all his house. And then Peter comes and preaches to him. And it says, um, oh, where does it say it? Uh, verse chapter 10, verse 2, he's got all his household. And then in verse... Um, uh, yeah, in verse 24, on the morrow they entered into Caesarea. Cornelius was waiting to get, for them, having called together his kinsmen and his near friends. I was thinking somewhere else in here it mentioned his household being baptized. All right, but anyway, that's the gist of it. That's the idea. You've got these household baptisms. Obviously, there are infants in those households. So, uh, obviously, that's infant baptism. Well, before Chase gets into stronger arguments, let me just throw something small. It just caught me. She paid attention to what Paul said. Talk about Lydia in Acts 16. I'm sorry. Yeah, Lydia. Back to Lydia. She, she paid attention to what Paul said. Yeah. And after immediately, I mean, the next verse says, and she was baptized. Why was she baptized? Because she was paying attention to what Paul said. Mm. And so she responded to that. And her household as well. Now, Greg, you're making an assumption that the household had babies or children in it. Do you know that for a fact? Well, 
as well, 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 in this particular case, do you know it for a fact? Because if you're going to say household always means babies, I think Chase can go to a couple of verses where this household is not babies. Well, well for a fact. So as Greg, I refer to a debate between two scholars that took place in 1960. And one of those scholars, according to Greg, one of those scholars said that anytime you see this word oikos, which is the word translated house or household here, anytime you see that word, there, it implies they're children. Otherwise, you wouldn't use that word. That's okay, stop right there. If, if, if Chase can come up with an example where there's house, well, that Greek word oikos is mm -hmm. used where we know there's no children, would yeah. that discredit that scholar making such a bold statement? And, and neither I or Chase are scholars, so we're we're you know we're just trying to figure this out on our own. Well, if, if, if a scholar makes that statement, yeah, and he says it's always used yeah. to include children, yeah. but yet we find scriptures that say it's not. Okay, credibility may be a little shattered, a little bit. Well, but I bet can you find such a passage? I don't know. Well, hold on. Before he does, let's go back to my reasoning about fourteen and fifteen. Uh, the Lord opened her heart. She paid attention. She was baptized and her household as well. If he's going to make an assumption there was children there, I'm going to make an assumption that the household also heard what Paul said. That's why they were baptized. But it gets better. She says, if you have judged me to be faithful, in other words, Paul, you've I've been acting faithful on what you said, then come stay with me, which means I have to make an assumption that the household who was there also was judged or could be judged in hearing Paul and responding with reason to be baptized. But all of this argument is based on assumptions. Assumption one that Craig is making, the word household has to mean children. Yeah. I want to know. Chase. Well, that's, that's some scholar in 1960, Jeremiah uh, indicated that. So, well, right. well, is he inspired? Well, he's a scholar. No, is he inspired? Well, he's, he's a scholar. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We can go back and forth with that all day long. We know he's not inspired. Men make mistakes. But now Chase. Well, she, can, you, can you disprove it? I mean, here's no, a scholar who's no, I don't know. Chase, can we disprove that? Is there okay. any use of the word household that doesn't yeah. include babies? Yes, there is. And there, I'm going to go there just a second. I do want to point out one more contextual argument that, that Joe Ham pointed out for us. In chapter 16 of Acts, in verse 37, or in verse 34, uh, the jailer said, He brought them into his house, set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. <laughs> there is. can't believe. Right. There is. A, so that's one contextual argument. I would oh, okay. It's getting sticky. There's, but a little hint, there's a little hint. There's a little hint. Household there may not have any children. But, 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 but it's the word house, and the word house has to include children. All right. So we've been teeing it up. Hebrews 11 and verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household or oikos uh, is the Greek uh, word there. So there must have been infants. There must have been children in that house. Greg, well, that's course. it. You have to make that assumption. Either there was children in that house. Well, there was only eight. Oh, I know what, Greg, you're going to say. Noah's children's wives, his daughter-in-law, they, they were pregnant. But that, that would go against what Peter said um, by the salvation of he and, and eight persons. Um, who, who were the, maybe one of those eight people was an infant. 
No, when we go back to the Genesis account, we know that was uh, Noah and his unnamed wife, his three sons and their wives. That's eight. Maybe the three sons were infants. Uh, no, they were 100 wives. years old. <laughs> oh. Well, okay, so maybe the word house doesn't imply infant. All right, let's go to another argument then. <laughs> so, um, and that was pretty good, Jeff, uh, Chase. You and, you and I didn't need Jeff's help on that one. <laughs> maybe he maybe he just gave us a little bit of fuel before the webcast yeah okay, okay. <laughs> all, right. all right how about uh how about luke 18 verse 15 and following let's go there luke 18 verse 15 and following so as greg strawbridge again advocating for infant baptism uh, i'm going to turn to this passage and i'm going to read here where in luke 8 uh uh 18 15 uh, we got one comment because, of course, Facebook's just a little bit behind us. Uh-huh. Paul was teaching slash preaching from house to house. Not every house has infants, but here the word oikos is used. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to give up on that argument, obviously. <laughs> I, wish, I wish Greg had been as, as, as willing to see the error of his way on this. <laughs> as you uh, are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, so if you've tuned in late, um, I am advocating for infant baptism. I don't really believe in infant baptism, but I am representing the, the viewpoints presented last night in a debate by a, a Calvinist named Greg Strawbridge, who was making these arguments that I'm making. And uh, so here's the next one, Luke chapter 18, verse 15. Um, so they were bringing unto him, to Jesus also their babes, oh baby, and that he should touch them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them unto him, saying, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Don't, don't tap your desk when you're reading. Sometimes that pow overpowers the... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Um, so, obviously here, these children are part of the, of the kingdom of God, and therefore they should be baptized, uh, because they're part of the covenant people. Okay. So you, you jumped from one thing to another. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm confused here. Let me, are you saying that they're part of the kingdom, but they're not under the covenant? Therefore, they should be baptized to be part of the covenant? Um, actually, I'm not sure what I'm saying about that. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure whether they're part of the covenant and then they're baptized, or if they're baptized and that makes them part of the covenant. You see, the, you see the, the hard time I'm having here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're all, he, he's saying they're already part of the kingdom. Therefore, that says that it's okay to baptize them. Why? If they're already part of the kingdom, why? Uh, now I'm all confused, Drew. <laughs> so one of our viewers wants to nickname you Daryl Strawman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. And you know what? That, that's, a, that's a good point. We really don't want to make a strongman's argument. No. So if anybody's on that side of the equation, um, we really want to have an open discussion. I mean, we're having fun with all of this, obviously. These are, fun. But these are exactly the arguments that were made last night by this man who's a, a Calvinist pastor in this area. And uh, he believes, uh, interestingly, he used to be against infant baptism. But when he ran into problems where he saw that his, his being against infant baptism argued against once saved, always saved, and he, he knew, in his mind, once saved, always saved, has to be true. He decided he needed to be for infant baptism. And so he was making the arguments that I'm making. Uh, well, he made a, another argument or two, but let's do this. We only have six minutes left in the program. So let's, wow. 
Oh, we did. Did we ever answer Luke eight fifteen? No, no, we didn't. Okay, I was asking you a question. Go ahead, Chase. Chase, you're gonna rebut that. Well, I was, I was just going to say that I don't disagree with the first thing that he said. Um, that is what the text says, that the kingdom of God belongs to children. Um, yeah. child, before they've reached the age of accountability, dies or, or something tragic happens to them, as has happened throughout all of history. I believe that child is saved. They're in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so they is, don't need to be baptized. Yeah. Right. Why, why would I feel the necessity to baptize them? Right. So a, a lot of this goes back to the original sin question that we talked about in last week's. That's right. That's right. If you're, if you didn't listen to last week's podcast, the Wednesday edition, uh, you can go back and we talked about original sin in that, in that one. Okay. Is Craig saying that it's more important to be in the co- under the covenant than it is to be saved and being part of the kingdom? No, he wouldn't say that's more important, but he would say that's the only thing you have a choice in. See, you, you it, remember he's a Calvinist, so he believes you have no choice as to whether you're saved or not. Um, you do have a choice as to whether or not you uh, join the church, the visible church, as he would say it. You do have a choice as to whether or not you um, follow the covenant, especially if you're not one of the saved. You know, you may. Uh, but so, so, what chur- what physical church are these children in that already belong to the covenant? The visible- I'm sorry, they belong to the kingdom. Yeah, I exactly. There's no answer for that problem, huh? Yeah. Okay. Um, Karen Gamin says, if Greg does not believe that baptism is for the forgiveness of sin, then how does any further position matter? That's an interesting question, and this was confusing to a lot of people who are listening to him because they're thinking baptism is about salvation, and they're thinking about Acts two thirty eight for the forgiveness of sins. Um, and and Greg at the beginning of the debate said, I'm not going to talk about conversion baptism. I'm not going to talk about anything. We're just talking about covenantal baptism. When you baptize infants, in his mind, in Greg's mind, we're just talking about kind of initiating them into this outward covenant, like there was an outward covenant with the Old Testament nation of Israel. And he believes that the new covenant is like that old covenant. So that's why it's so important, that first passage you guys were talking about, the one in Hebrews 8 where Jeremiah 31 is, co- is quoted to say, no, the new covenant is not like the old covenant. Under the old covenant, yes, there were people who were not truly inwardly God's people. But under the new covenant, everybody included in the new covenant is inwardly converted, is inwardly a one who knows God. And so that's a profound difference. All right, but uh, go ahead. I was going to say, we did have another uh, comment come in, and I want to clarify if it was missed earlier. So in Luke 15, um, or Luke 18, in verse 15, Jesus said, and it says, and they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. And Jesus called for them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Uh, One of the viewers asked, do children go to heaven if they were to die before age of accountability? Also, what about miscarriages? I want to appeal to this passage to say, yes, those children will go to heaven. Yeah. They're in the kingdom of God. Yeah. In the Matthew, event of a miscarriage, in the event of, of them not reaching that age, they will go to heaven. Understand the thing that keeps any of us out of heaven is sin. Our sin, not somebody else's sin. And Jesus' death on the cross is to atone for that sin, to take that sin away so that we can stand righteous before God, our sins having been punished in Christ. But if you're talking about a child that is a month old and hasn't sinned yet, 
then the thing that would keep me out of heaven were I not in Christ, namely my sins, that child has no sin. And so um, I think you're right, Chase. I, 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 would, I would answer this, the, question, the viewer's question the same way. Matthew 18 even says it, strong, I think, stronger. He says, in Matthew 18, 3, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, yeah, the child, if he dies at that point, or she dies at that point, she's in the kingdom already. We have to become like them. In other words, innocent. Yeah. Okay, guys. Well, we had a couple other things we could have gotten to, but we're out of time. We, um, you know, we had good participation from our viewers today. We appreciate that very much. Um, Lord willing, we'll be back with you next Wednesday afternoon. You can also catch the Tuesday webcast of Bible Quest uh, at 2.30 Tuesday afternoons. Two, uh, thank, two, two o'clock on Tuesdays. At the, two o'clock. Thank you. Thank you. And we're back at three o'clock on Wednesday. Okay. Chase, thank you. Drew, thank you. And just to make it clear, I do not believe in infant baptism or infant sprinkling. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. Thank you all for listening. Lord willing, we'll see you next week.